Somebody didn't want to leave the worship service. I can't blame her. How many of you have been watching uh, classic Christmas movies this Christmas season? Anybody? Well, let's play a little game. I'm going to show you a few movies, and you let me know if you've watched them, okay? How about this one here? It's a Wonderful Life. Anybody seen that yet this year? Love that one. We still got to watch that, AG. Uh, we got that left to watch. Uh, here, here's another one. White Christmas, another classic. Anybody? Uh, some of y'all are two for two, right? Uh, what about uh, Christmas Carol? I know that's a little different. Not, it doesn't have to be this one, just any one. Christmas Carol, anybody seen that? Okay. Uh, what about this one? Santa Claus. <laughs> Change it up a little bit. Yeah, a few of you. And uh, last but certainly not least, uh, how about Elf? Anybody seen Elf? Yeah, yeah, good. Lots of great Christmas movies being shown this time of year. There are lots of great Christmas stories. Some of them are personal stories, stories uh, about friends and family, some of them fictional love stories, Christmas stories about being thankful for what you have and being benevolent with what you've been given, great stories. And let's be honest, we, we love a great story, don't we? Especially a great Christmas story, whether it's a, a personal story being told by a family member of a Christmas from long ago or a Christmas movie we, we watch every year, or maybe a Christmas story that we read, like Dickens' Christmas Carol or Twas the Night Before Christmas. Well, this morning we are going to talk about the true Christmas story, the first and, of course, greatest Christmas story. And it is a true story, unlike these fictional stories we see this time of year. And uh, though I know many of you have heard this story, you've read this story over and over again, year after year, so many times you think there's nothing new you can learn from it. My prayer this morning is as we look at this Christmas story, my prayer is that you would hear it afresh this morning as if you're hearing it for the first time and you would discover new great truths from this great story. If you have your Bibles, turn to Luke chapter 2. We are continuing our series through the Gospel of Luke, and today we're going to be looking at the story of Jesus's birth. And there are several things I want you to notice about this story. First, I want you to notice the timing of the story. The timing of the story. Look at verses 1 and 2. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. There are a couple of points I want to make here. First, notice the when of these events. Luke tells us when these events happened. They happened when Caesar Augustus ruled and when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And you say, well, why is that important? I'll tell you. Luke is showing us here in these verses that these events happened. They happened. Like we said in the first sermon of this series, this is a true story. It happened in a real place, in real time, in history. Some, when they hear this story, they just lump it in with all the other fictional stories they're told this time of year. Now listen, this story, it happened. Luke shows us here that these events, they involved real people, took place in a real place, in real time, in history. 
Folks, in the book of Acts, when Jesus' disciples went out and they filled this message, they filled Jerusalem with this message, and persecution pushed them out to Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth, they did not simply share what they believed or what they hoped happened. They reported what did happen what they saw with their own eyes and what they heard with their own ears. They reported that the events of Jesus' life, His birth, His life, His death, His resurrection and ascension, it happened in a real place, in real time, in human history. They mentioned that over and over again. They appealed to eyewitnesses, those who weren't there, and eyewitnesses share their story, and that's what Luke is doing here. He is sharing the story of eyewitnesses. Notice also that not only did these events happen in real time, but they happened in God's perfect timing. That's what Paul tells us. Galatians chapter 4, verse 4. Paul tells us that Christ came in the fullness of time. But when the fullness of time had come, Paul says, God sent forth his son, born of a woman. Now, here's here's the interesting thing here. While according to Paul, this was the fullness of time, historically, this was a rough time for the Jewish people. This was far from being the high point in the nation's history. So why do you think that this was the right time for God? You would think that the fullness of time would have been hundreds of years prior to this event when... King David or his son King Solomon was was in power when when the kingdom of Israel was actually a, a, a world power and when there was peace on all sides from their enemies. You would think that God would consider that to be the fullness of time at the height of Israel's power and prestige, yet it's not. Instead, Christ comes at one of the lowest points. In the nation's history, he comes after Israel had suffered the division of the northern and southern kingdoms after they had been defeated by their enemies and taken into captivity. Jesus came when there wasn't a kingdom at all. Israel at this time was just a client state of Rome. Which, which meant they were under Roman rule. They were subservient to them, and that was not a good situation. And that's putting it lightly. The Romans were, were pagans, polytheistic, immoral, and corrupt people. They were extremely powerful, and they were also extremely oppressive. Not a good time to be a Jewish person. Yet God, according to Paul in Galatians 4, viewed this as the opportune time, the perfect time, the absolute right time to send his son. Why? Well, I believe it's because God is not concerned with displaying and drawing attention to human power and prestige. Instead, he wants to highlight his greatness, his might, his majesty, and he does it throughout the pages of Scripture. And notice how he does it here. Notice how God displays his power in this story. He does it over Roman rulers. Luke tells us that God has the Roman emperor, the most powerful person in the world at this time. He has him and another powerful leader named Quirinius do his bidding. Though they had their own reasons 
for issuing and, and implementing this decree for everyone to be registered. God was ultimately behind it all. And he uses this decree as a means to get Joseph and Mary to the place of Jesus' birth to fulfill his word, scripture, his prophecy. Caesar Augustus, the emperor of the Roman world in Quirinius, the powerful governor of Syria, are mere pawns in the hand and in the plan of God. How about that? Folks, this should comfort you this morning. Listen, God has a plan that he is fulfilling on his terms at his time, which is the absolute right time. He has a work that he is accomplishing at the time he is appointed and not even the emperor of Rome can stand in the way. Instead, God uses him and other leaders as pawns for his purposes. Proverbs 21.1, the king's heart, is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. Kings are pawns in the plan of God. He turns them wherever he wills. He uses them however he pleases for his purposes. Whatever God wills to do, he does, and the most powerful of men on earth can do nothing about it. Instead, he uses them as pawns in his plan. Therefore, because that's true, we should not be fearful in this life, should we, believers? We should be the most optimistic people on the planet. Shame on you if you're moping around due to what's going on in the world today. Listen, no matter who's in power, no matter what those in authority do, we're not to be fearful but faithful to the God who truly reigns. Trusting in and being comforted by the fact that he is the one true sovereign of the universe. He is in control. He turns those in power wherever he wills and he uses them however he pleases for his purposes. Amen. So that's the timing of the story. Now let's talk about the place of the story. The place of the story. And I'm sure many of you are thinking to yourself, Graham, I don't think we need to Spend too much time on this, right? Uh, we know the story takes place in the little town of Bethlehem, in, in, a, in a manger, right? Well, I want to take a few minutes to really focus in on the place and the significance of this place and the place where Jesus was born within Bethlehem. Uh, but first, I want to focus on how Joseph and Mary get to Bethlehem and, and why our story takes place there. Look at verses 1 and 2 again through verse 5. In those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, underline that, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. So, so notice again here in this story that God uses these Roman rulers as pawns. He has them issue this decree which forces Joseph and Mary to travel to the place where Christ is to be born, to Bethlehem. It's estimated that the journey would have taken them about five to six days to make. So they make this journey from Nazareth to Bethlehem. And the reason why is because there is a census taking place. In those days, at this time, people were required to report to certain areas to be registered for tax 
purposes. And like I said a moment ago, when, when looking at verses 1 and 2, Luke tells us that, that Caesar Augustus had issued such a decree that required men to return where their families were originally from for their families to be registered. And we learn in this passage that Joseph is from the house and lineage of David, which is why he goes to David's town in Bethlehem, and this is where Jesus is born, and this is a very important detail in our story. Because in 2 Samuel 7, God promises David that one is going to rise up from his house, one is going to come from his family who is going to rule forever. So, so Luke, by sharing that Jesus was from the house of David, born in the city of David, he's showing that Jesus is that fulfillment to that promise that God made to David. This is also a direct fulfillment of the prophecy that Micah gave us in Micah chapter 5 verse 2 written hundreds of years before these events in Micah 5 2 Micah prophesies that the Messiah to be born will be born in Bethlehem amazing right so Luke is is showing here by telling of the birthplace of Jesus he is showing that Jesus is the Messiah. He is the one who has come to rule. He is the fulfillment of Micah 5. He is the one who is going to sit on the throne of David forever. He is God's forever king, the baby born in Bethlehem. He is the king of kings. In addition to the town, notice the place in Bethlehem where Jesus is born. Look at verse 7. And she gave birth to her firstborn son, and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. Now, there is quite a bit of debate on the place in Bethlehem where Jesus is born. Some say a stable, others a cave, others below the guest room in the family home, which is where the animals were kept. So let's talk about this for just a minute. This is just for fun. This is extra. I won't charge you for it, okay? First, let's talk about the most widely held view. Many believe Jesus is describing a stable here. Notice all that is mentioned is an inn and a manger. A manger was a feeding trough for animals, and in this day, they commonly carved it from stone. Here's a picture of one here. Let's look at it. It, it looks something like, like this, the manger wood, okay? So it's not wooden. It, it probably would have been stone, something like, something like this. Cattle, sheep, donkeys, and horses would feed from this, and those animals were commonly kept in what were called cave stables, and they would feed from these stone mangers. It looks something like this. Go to the next slide there. This is uh, somebody's really trying to be authentic with their nativity scene here. Uh, a cave stable, sort of like this. If you've seen the movie, the nativity, we'll go to the next slide. They, they uh, portray Jesus being born in a cave stable, okay? While no innkeeper is mentioned here, the word used, translated in, is the Greek word katalima, which can be translated lodging place for travelers, okay? Which would mean 
The person who addresses them is probably the innkeeper who told them that there was no room. Many say then, because there was no room, Mary and Joseph would have stayed in the only place available where they could have some shelter, a cave stable with animals, given the details that were given here. The ESV study Bible on Luke says this. Look at this quote up on the screen. It says, The greatest miracle in the history of the world happens in a stable in an obscure village in Judea. The in with the definite article the indicates that this was a specific publicly known lodging place for individual travelers and caravans. The inn was full since many had come to Bethlehem to register for the census. Now, some have a difficult time with this view, the idea that a pregnant woman would be sent out into the night with no place to stay. But need I remind you that we have a homeless population throughout our country today, tons of people with no place to stay, some expecting mothers sleeping under bridges and on street corners and in wooded areas. Sad, sad state of things, right? But not unthinkable in our society. There's another interesting explanation that I want to share with you that's held by some today, and this is worth mentioning. The word catalema can also be translated guest room. So some argue that because Joseph was returning to the home of his family, he would have had family living in the area to stay with, and they argue that where he and Mary went was not to an inn, but to a family home, and there were no guest rooms available because a lot of family were in because of the census, so they had to stay on the bottom level of the house. And in this day, many houses looked like this. Look at this image here. This was commonly uh, what the houses looked like in this day. The bottom level of the homes would have been where they housed their animals, which explains also a manger being there. Okay, so some refuse to, they, they, they take more of this view. Go to the next slide too, that kind of gives a more simple view of the layout of homes in this day. So uh, uh, many say that Mary and Joseph would not have been turned away by family, especially with Mary being pregnant, if, if they went to family. Danny Morris actually gave me a good article on this, sort of explaining this view. I'd encourage you, if you want some extra reading this time of year, uh, to read up on this and study this. There's a lot of conversation happening about this. I read a great article from the Gospel Coalition as well on this. So if you're interested, do some further reading. In the Holman Illustrated Bible Dictionary, I read this. Look at this quote here. Many Palestinian homes consisted of one large room that contained an elevated section and a lower section. The elevated section was the family's living quarters, while the lower section housed the family animals, usually a manger in the form of a masonry box or a stone niche. It was located in the lower section. Mangers were also put in cave stables or other stalls, the manger referred to in Luke 2.16 may have been in a cave stable or other shelter. There Jesus was laid to sleep after his birth. Now that's just extra, but listen, no matter where you land on this, I think we can all agree this is a secondary issue. Am I right? If you're 
studying your Bible and seeking to understand the Word of God in the context in which it was written, I think we can disagree agreeably on this. This should not land anyone outside the faith and should not even separate us denominationally. But get this, no matter where you land on this, it doesn't change the fact that our Lord God the Son took an immeasurable step down for us. He came in humility, whether in a room that housed animals or in a cave stable. This is no place for the king of kings, yet this is the place where God sent him. This is the place where Christ went willingly. Let me ask you this. Do you think King Herod had his son sleeping in a feeding trough or any of the other kings at this time? Of course not. In the next point, we'll talk more about how Christ came in lowliness and in humility. And that's the point. We, we've talked about the timing of the story the place of the story. Now let's talk about the person of the story. Look at verses 6 and 7 again. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. She gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger. Here we are introduced to the who of the story. The person of the Christmas story is the Lord Jesus. But notice again, the description given of his birth. Very interesting. Though we said in the previous point that this baby born in Bethlehem is the king. Notice that he's not born in glory, but in humility. Not in a palace of gold and silver, but in a place with unclean animals. Not clothed in silk and beautiful baby garments, but wrapped in claws that have been stripped and wrapped around him like a peasant. The king of all kings, the lord of all creation, was born to a no-name family from Nazareth in Bethlehem. Folks, that's a very important detail in this story. Those of us, we read this story through year after year. We just gloss over this without a second glance. But these details are very important. Luke, by explaining to us the manner in which Jesus is born, he gives us insight into, get this, what Jesus came to do. The more and more we learn about Jesus in this story, the more and more we learn about God in his gospel. Time and time again in here, I, I have shared with you in more ways than one, that at the heart of the gospel, we see the great love of God for us in the way he humbles himself by humbling his son for us. We see that displayed at the cross. We see the great love of God for us in that he allowed his son, he sent his son to die, to be tortured and humiliated, being scourged, then Crucified, but we also see the great humility of God in the Christmas story. In this passage, we see how God humbled himself in the humbling of his son by sending him to earth for our sakes. This account here of Jesus' birth is a wonderful picture of the gospel. It's a wonderful reminder to us of the great lengths that God has gone through to save us. Whatever it takes, he does. Whatever it costs, he pays. 
Wherever he has to go, he goes. Whatever he has to bear, he bears. Though we have rebelled against him. In order to rescue us, the very people who have rejected him, God plans for and allows for his son to take an immeasurable step down for us. He sends him down to us and Christ comes willingly. And he doesn't just take the form of a man, that's lowly enough, but, but he became a lowly man for us. He is born a Nazarene in Bethlehem for us. And this is simply the beginning of what Christ endures. His life begins in humility and it ends in humility. He was obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, Paul says in Philippians 2. And the application for us, folks, is very, very simple. The God who has humbled himself for us calls for us to do the same. We are to be humble as God is humble. Believers, when God calls us to humility, which he does over and over again in his word, right? When he does this, he is not calling for you or for me to do something which he himself has not already done. He is not calling for us to do something that's inconsistent with his own character. He has done it. God humbled himself in every way by the humbling of his son. So next time you don't feel like humbling yourself, the next time you struggle with pride and you're tempted to put yourself first, remember how God has humbled himself by humbling his son. Remember the immeasurable step down that the Lord has taken for us. Remember that the baby born to a, a no-name Nazarene family in a feeding trough is none other than the King of kings and Lord of lords. Boy, that should humble you. Listen, believers. While Christ had every right to stay put right where he was, he chose to empty himself by becoming one of us. He came in our greatest time of need. He entered into this dark and dead world as the light of this world to bring light and life to a world filled with darkness and death. 2 Corinthians 8, 9, commit it to memory. Though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor so that you by his poverty might become rich. Great word. Paul tells us, in Philippians 2, that we're to have this mind in us. We're to follow in his footsteps. As Christ humbled himself to serve us in our time of need, we're to do the same for others. Doesn't matter how lowly or how lofty you are in society. If Christ has become poor so that you might become rich, if he stepped up off the throne, the heavenly throne, we got no excuse. We got no excuse. So we've talked about the when and the where and the who of the story. Now let's end with the why, okay? Talked about the timing of the Christmas story, the place of the Christmas story, the person of the Christmas story. Now let's end by talking about the point of the Christmas story. What's the point? We learn in Matthew 1 and Luke 1 that the baby born in Bethlehem over 2,000 years ago is none other than Christ the Lord, the Savior who has been sent to save us from sin and death. Remember when Gabriel, uh, what he said to Mary about this baby? Look uh, back at Luke chapter 1, verse 31. Look at it. He said, Behold, you will conceive 
in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Gabriel says, this is the Son of God, the Son of the Most High, God's forever king. You're to give him the name Jesus. In Matthew 1, the angel of the Lord says to Joseph, your wife will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus. Why? For he will save his people from their sins. Folks, we said a few weeks ago that this is the point of the story. The, the Christmas story is about a king coming to our rescue. It's about a king coming to save. When we were talking about Mary and Zachariah's songs. I share with you that my favorite Christmas songs are songs that we've been singing this time of year here at the church. And it's songs that, that really communicate this message because that's the point of Christmas. Christmas is about a king coming to save. It's about God the Son coming to earth as one of us for the purpose of saving us from our sins and restoring us to a right relationship with God Almighty. In joy to the world, we sing this. No more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow, far as the curse is found. Go tell it on the mountain, down in a lowly manger. The humble Christ was born, and God sent us salvation that blessed Christmas morn. Come thou long-expected Jesus, born to set thy people free. From our fears and sins release us. Let us find our rest in thee. Born thy people to deliver. Born a child and yet a king. Born to reign in us forever. Now thy gracious kingdom bring. And hark the herald angels sing. We sing, hail the heaven-born prince of peace. Hail the son of righteousness. Light and life to all he brings. Risen with healing in his wings. Mild he lays his glory by. Born that man no more may die. Born to raise the sons of earth. Born to give them second birth. Hark the herald angels sing glory to the newborn king. That's the point of Christmas. Christmas story is the story of Jesus, God the Son, the Messiah, coming from glory to darkness as the light of the world to bring light and life to this dark and dead world. It's about a substitute coming to live and die in the place of sinners, a priest offering the perfect sacrifice, the Lamb of God laying his own life down for his sheep to pay for sins, past, present, and future forever. Amen? It's about a Savior coming to our rescue, a merciful judge coming to pardon, a king coming to reign in us forever, God coming to restore and redeem. That's the Christmas message. That's the point. May we not forget that when we pass those nativity scenes that we see decorating lawns and church buildings. May we not forget that. That's the Christmas message. What's your response going to be to this message today? This message demands a response. You cannot remain neutral when it comes to this message and when it comes to Jesus. He has come to save. 
He has come to rule and reign in us. And there are only one of two responses to his person and work. Believe and be saved or reject and be condemned. That's it. That's it. There's no in-between. One of the greatest Christmas passages in all of Scripture is John 3, 16 through 18. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Verse 18, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. What will be your response to Jesus today Christ has come he has come to save and I pray if you're not trusting in him alone for your salvation today would be the day that you respond to him by turning from your sin and bowing the knee to Jesus let's pray